The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Good to see how we can use thought in a very productive way. A lot of times we think thinking is just bad, you know, in meditation, in terms of meditation, but thinking is bad if it takes the mind down a road where basically the body, heart, mind, it disconnects. There's a lack of awareness of, oh, this is happening now. But when we're doing a forgiveness meditation, even though we have memory, which is often one of the ways we get lost in thought, but the thing that keeps it grounded in the present moment is, you know, we use the memory of a person, of an event, but then we've got the feeling right then and there, like, well, how does this feel now? And this is one of the interesting things about meditation practice and just more generally this whole path of awakening. You know, on the one hand, it's a very liberating process to be paying more attention, being more present and open to life, but it's profoundly healing too. Because as we become more sensitive, more open, we start to recognize, you know, it isn't theoretical that life is difficult for human beings. Because as we become more open, we basically are aware, we're awake to the wounds of having been a human being for a while. All of the pleasures of unfinished business. And, uh, I mean, some of them actually exist as physical scars, but a lot are just emotional scars, just places of holding in the mind-body, subtle body. That, you know, we can go through a busy day or a busy life and not be too aware of it. But if you start to systematically cultivate being open, being awake, well, of course, we're going to not be awake to more than just the breath going in and out. We're going to feel the way the heart is, the way the mind is, the places that are tight, the ways that the system, the mind-body system is closed down doors that it doesn't want to open. And this is exactly what we want. We think somehow, you know, this terrible mistake we make as human beings where we assume that pain is bad, so emotional pain is also bad then, not just physical pain, and the appropriate response is to run from it, to hide from it, to tuck it away, to stay in denial or to, you know, be disconnected from it. And uh, one of the things that happens is we do cultivate more mindfulness, more of a sense of being open and present with life, is we recognize how, how bad that deal is. You know, that running involves so much additional stress and pain, being in denial. And this is really where forgiveness comes in, because once we enter this path, however we get to it, whether we're sort of formally doing the Buddhist meditation thing or just in our own way have started to cultivate more mindfulness in our lives, trusting that open 
clear, calm presence more and more, will just naturally become sensitive to whatever is there, you know, any unfinished business from the past. Whether it's unfinished business from today, like I did a wedding earlier today, and uh, it was just a little mix-up at the end. I was thinking the band was going to be coming back under this little tent, but they decided not to. So I was sort of buying time, wondering why they didn't remember their cue. <laughs> and uh, they decided they didn't want to bother to hook up to the amps, and they were just going to play sort of unwired over where they were. So there's sort of this little mix-up, and you know, nobody's to blame. But I just noticed there's a little wound, you know, like a little open wound, a little shame or embarrassment. Um, and, uh, you know, I just like, see this, I've seen this a million times, like not wanting to feel that, and so wanting to keep busy, you know, deflecting, redirecting my mind, keeping busy, and then when I quiet down, it's there, you know. And uh, rationalizing it is just, you know, that's a tight mind state because the motivation is to suppress the pain. I'm telling myself why it's not my fault in order not to feel the pain. The fact is that there's pain. And so, it's like forgiveness isn't about right and wrong. In fact, the whole practice very quickly takes us beyond that whole notion of right and wrong. It's, as the Buddha says, it's about suffering and the end of suffering, stress and the end of stress. So then the real question is, pragmatically speaking, what do we do with this pain, this unfinished business, whether it's something relatively small like I mentioned, or, you know, something you did on your, you know, whatever, your high school graduation night, or, you know, in a breakup, or, that you regret, or that somebody did to you that you're still holding in some way. What do we do with that pain? I mean, who in this room has not felt the pain of betrayal of one form or another? I'm even betrayed by our body. <clears throat> I've gotten this head cold three times now in the last six months. I feel a little betrayed by my body. It's like, you know. It doesn't occur to me that I'm doing something wrong, so I sort of like, who's out to get me? <laughs> so we can feel betrayed in all kinds of ways. We can feel betrayed by the politics, you know, the stupidity of the people running this country or something like that. We can feel betrayed by our parents. You know, why weren't they wiser? You know, if they only had been perfect Buddhas, I'd be so less screwed up or something like that. And all these different ways, but the fact is, the real basic present moment fact is, the heart hurts. And then the question is, well, what are we going to do about that pain or betrayal, yeah, those different insults that we've been touched by? In this chapter, Jack Hornfield um, articulates this following principle of Buddhist psychology. He says, forgiveness is both necessary and possible. It is never too late to find forgiveness and start again. And I think that's the right way to understand this whole path of forgiveness. 
when we realize our instincts of running from pain. Sometimes we run from pain by denying it or suppressing it. Sometimes we run from pain by picking it up and, you know, trying to have revenge or trying to get even. But both are running from just being with the pain, being with the yucky feeling of the pain. Or even the breaking of the heart, like in the experience of loss. And it's this basic uh, misperception that pain is dangerous. How much more useful it is to understand pain is information. It's just information. So what is this pain? You know, what does it have to say or teach me? What does it really want to do? What does pain want to do? Emotional pain, physical pain. Pain wants to move. So the, the path of forgiveness really allows us a, a different approach. It's like a paradigm shift. The way we've been conditioned by our culture is that pain is bad, so deny it, run from it, fix it, control it, hate it. From that to pain is information, pain wants to move. Like everything else in this universe, pain just wants to move. It wants to express its natural unfolding, which is movement. That's what pain does. And so when we're forgiving ourselves, when we're forgiving another person, when we're asking forgiveness, just remember, we're doing this in the present moment. So even though it may be about some event 30 years ago, the pain, the unfinished business is here and now. It's not 30 years ago. So that image, those images from the past, the memories from the past, they're just sort of useful devices to help illuminate what's true right now. That's the important thing, what's true right now. What is the body, mind, heart feeling right now? And so we use the phrases or we use whatever wisdom, whatever right view we can have, like it isn't easy being a human being. It's easy to make mistakes. It's easy for our minds to be confused by fear. We can use phrases and perspectives like that to allow the heart to see and feel and open to this unfinished business and to allow things to move, maybe just a little bit. So instead of frozen or locked in time, you know, the pain, it begins to move a little bit, unwind a little bit. Sure. How do you, how do you draw the distinction between blindness and suffering but let pain go on? Well, why would that be incongruent? Like, may, it w Right, that maybe the end of suffering is the turning toward it. See, the thing, I had this discussion recently with someone, maybe it was even this morning when I was giving a similar talk, that, um, you know, one of the things that eventually strikes home really and really changes us is that our approach to pain isn't working. So we, it creates a little humility, like we have to get outside the box because whatever I'm doing, it isn't working. It's like in a simple example, when you have knee pain and you're sitting and, uh, you know, 
in so many ways we try to fix it or control it. And even when we're trying to just be with it, we're doing that in order to make it go away. And nothing works. So it really, it's a humbling experience just to sit with ordinary physical pain or restlessness or boredom. It's one of the real values in the basic sitting practice where you're sitting still for 45 minutes or 30 minutes or whatever works for you. Because in that container, all sorts of things are going to happen that you're not going to like and you're going to want to change it or fix it. And you're going to keep bumping up that wall and seeing that denial doesn't work, control doesn't work, hating it doesn't work, wanting things to be other doesn't work. So finally, because nothing else works, we're willing to turn toward it, you know, and uh, get interested in the pain. The pain that we feel because we've harmed another, the pain we feel because someone has harmed us, the pain we feel because we see, recognize how we're imperfect, you know, and making mistakes, that we can just own it or rest with it or open to it. And that's when all of a sudden things start to move or things begin to heal or transform. And it's like we didn't expect it there. It's almost like like we discover it by mistake. Like we give up doing all of our self-centered approaches of trying to control it and fix it and get rid of it. And we're so frustrated eventually we just give up. But in giving up we're still there right in the middle of it. And something happens. So either we discover it by mistake or, you know, we stumble upon the Buddhist teachings or somebody's teachings that are similar that sort of is inviting this surrender, this opening, this interest in pain and this forgiveness. Forgiveness is just, remember, forgiveness is really the recognition that I no longer want to live in this world of good and bad, of sort of throwing people out of our hearts drawing ourself out of our heart. It's like, it just doesn't make sense anymore. I want something, I need to try something different. So forgiveness is no longer being in that world. And all of a sudden everything starts to come alive. Now it takes some time for us to really trust it, you know. And it's best to start where pains, the pains are relatively small. Because strong pain, emotional pain for example, is very seductive. It really uh, it triggers in a very deep way the sense of self that needs to protect itself. And we have to respect the depth of that conditioning. That's why generally we work with small things like when we're sitting still for 30 minutes and we feel restless or I feel a little pang from some um, sort of embarrassing thing that happened a couple hours ago. That, that I can, I, you know, that is an ex isn't an existential crisis. I can be with that. And I can sort of take the teachings that have been inspiring for me and say, well, let's check this out. What happens if I really uh, relax and be undefended with this quality of shame? Is it, is it actually damaging or causing harm or getting worse? And we see, in a way it gets worse because we are we're sort of raw or vulnerable to that. We're not uh, sort of telling ourselves a story. But the movement, we really trust that movement. Pain is a problem 
when we can't let it in. That's what makes it a problem. Pain isn't a problem when it's moving. Just try it with small bumps and scrapes. You know, next time you bang your head or stub your toe, you know, try both. Where one is like, I, I don't want to feel this pain. I don't want to let it in. I don't want to let it move. You know, and we dance around or we curse or we, you know, tighten up around it. And then the next time, or even that same time, then just sit down, or even better, lie down. Undefended. Just let the pain move. And in some ways, it will be even more intense. But it won't last long. And we learn something that we need to learn. You know, that the movement of pain is as natural as anything is natural. You know, in a human life, can we imagine anything that would be more natural than the movement of pain? It's, you know, pain and joy are two biggest teachers. And it's like if we don't, if we're not willing to learn from pain, we remain pretty ignorant. <laughs> and we don't really learn from joy either. Have you noticed? We get tight around joy too. When something really beautiful is happening, we get equally tight trying to hold it, trying to make it last instead of just being with the beauty, with the goodness. You know, so we do it also with joy. Yeah. can be used as a way of pushing away and sometimes it can be part of inviting in and opening up. So you just have to look. What is the intention behind it? Or is it used as a distraction or a control mechanism? Is it used as an encouragement for the heart to include, to be interested, to understand it? Yeah. yeah, because when, when life is moving, sometimes tears are part of that movement, sometimes howling is part of that movement, and sometimes stillness is part of that movement. So we can't really judge it by the external. Like because somebody is sitting still, it doesn't mean that they could be going through the most cathartic healing movement, and somebody who's doing some sort of moving and howling, they could be engaged in sort of intense repression. But we just don't know. So this is important that we don't judge people by these. Really only the person themselves knows what's going on because intention is not easy to see by external things. I mean, if you know somebody really well, you might be able to intuit it to some degree. But it's not easy generally to know. But you can know. But you can get interested. So the next time, just because you ask this question, the next time you're in that situation and you start to vocalize what's happening, you'll, you're, that, uh, it's likely to come up. Oh, what's this about? You'll get interested in the, in the vocalization. 
and whether it's some subtle kind of control or subtle encouragement to let things be. And this, you know, this whole opening process and this tonight, you know, we're talking about forgiveness as a, a way of looking at this path of awakening, this path of being open and present, wise and loving. It's really this path of strength. You know, we often think of controlling pain or uh, fighting back as strength. But actually, real power, real beauty and wisdom and love is this capacity to let nature move. I remember once somebody had lost uh, somebody very close to them. They called me up. Um, and they were you know, having a difficult time. It was a very sudden death and because of a car accident. So, of course, a total surprise. One of the most important persons in this person's life was there, and then they weren't there anymore. And uh, they were just saying how the pain was just unbearable. And, uh, you know, I haven't really experienced that in my life. So it's always hard to know what to say in situations like that. But my instinct was that even something that appears to be completely unworkable, overwhelming, like it's going to kill us, that we shouldn't assume that it's going to actually kill us or be destructive. Can we you know, just it's not about like saying, well, we should let it in. That it's it's more about not believing the thought that the intensity makes it dangerous. And so that's just an example of the power, like the power to be present, not just with the stubbed toes or the disappointment when the person you want isn't elected, or you know. The, food you want to eat in the fridge, somebody else has eaten. But the really big things, like the power of the heart to show up and include absolutely everything. And to put down that burden, like not to have to be the angry person, not to have to be the disappointed person anymore, not to have to be the rageful person or the you know, whatever kind of person, whatever sort of contracted state we get in. Think about that freedom. And part of the strength of forgiveness, too, comes from this, this uh, truth that we just feel in our bones. Many of you know this phrase from the Buddhist teachings that he said, hatred never ceases through hatred, but through love alone. This is the ancient and eternal truth. Hatred never ceases through a hatred, but through love alone. So, hating pain isn't the way to the freedom from pain, freedom from suffering, but through love alone. And we, we start to see this truth um, sort of revealing itself in little places. Again, generally, we start to see it in the, the less intense places in our life. 
That's why sitting practice, again, is so useful because in one 45-minute sit, we can see this dozens of times. A good sit, we can see it very clearly a couple times. That actually rocks our world a little bit. That hatred never works. It never, ever works. Anger never, ever, ever, ever works. Now, it's totally understandable that we're going to get angry and we're going to be controlling and we're going to be impatient and unforgiving. And, but we should really be interested and see over and over again that it doesn't work. It never helps. Never. Only through love alone. Does things do things begin to move and liberate, free up. And if we can learn this in all the little ways in our daily life, like being in traffic and hating it, does anybody still think that works? I mean, intellectually, we all know that hating being in traffic doesn't work. And some of us know that so well that we're less likely to be in that state, right? I bet there more than a handful of people in this room that no longer get irritated by traffic because it's hurt so much they finally decided to try something different than hating the traffic. And you, you know, we could name 30 other little irritants in life, whatever it might be. So what we want to do is we want to see this truth being presented in our life over and over until it really gets this force a powerful momentum. It's just like moving through our life. So as we move, it like announces itself over and over to us. Hatred never works. But only through love alone. That's it. And now wouldn't you want that kind of wisdom to announce itself? Think about how many places it would have been useful for that kind of wisdom to announce itself over and over and over again. Nicole Taras, uh, one of our community members, gave a talk on Friday night, really wonderful talk. We'll get it up on the website. If you weren't here on Friday night, you can listen to it. She's somebody who's been in a wheelchair her whole life. She must be about 40 now. And um, you know, has had many medical problems and, uh, of course, needed full-time caretaking through her whole life, and uh, her talk was Appreciating Difficult People. That was the title of her talk. <laughs> and, you know, just being so vulnerable and uh, needy for sort of regular assistance to do everything, and, or a lot of things in life. And, uh, yeah, and one of the things that really hit home in her talk for me was just this... Uh, in one way she said she talked about it in different ways, but one way she talked about it is, you know, and you really get the sense from Nicole that uh, she learned early on how to be strong, because how to advocate for herself, how to speak clearly about what she needs, how to be really direct with people. You can, she's got that real power, even though physically, you know, she's vulnerable. Uh, psychically, emotionally, she seems very strong. And... Uh, but, it, you know, she kind of learned that, and of course it was useful for her to learn that assertive quality, to really develop it to an nth degree. But at some point she realized that, uh, in this particular situation she was talking about, that it wasn't helping. You know, kind of being clear with this person, 
telling him what he needed to do or what was off or what was wrong wasn't working. So finally, she had to find another way. And the way, one of the ways she described it is, um, and she had studied some Tung Lin, this Tibetan practice where you breathe in all of the difficulties of the world and you give away all of your beautiful qualities to the world, to those in need. So it's just opposite our sort of self-instinct, the self-preservation, right? Where we want to hold on to the good stuff and stay away from the bad stuff. Now we're consciously using our imagination. We're breathing in all of the danger, all of the suffering, all of the needs of all the people. We're breathing in and we're giving away everything. Our love, all of our security, we're offering it out. So anyway, she'd been studying that and doing some of that practice. And then it occurred to her that what she needs to do is, when interacting with this person and other people like that, that somehow she needs to really hold the pain. That she can't confront the pain with her sort of clarity, her directness, her assertiveness, because they can't communicate then. They can't have a conversation then. But if she could hold the pain, sort of like really receive their pain, oh, and not sort of take it personally and sort of be the victim, but just find a way to receive it. Oh, yeah. It changes everything. And maybe you've had some relationships in your life. And this is, I think, in some way an expression of forgiveness. Whether we're asking for forgiveness or giving forgiveness. But just this understanding that this pain isn't something to be afraid of. Like if somebody acts out and hurts us in a way, you know, just understand that they're coming out of pain. When people do mean things, bad things, stupid things, one way or another, they're under the influence of pain. When people are, even when they're just distracted, you know, distraction is a strategy we use when we're in pain. Like even the pain of boredom. So what do we do? We fantasize. Because we don't want to be with the pain of boredom. Try being with boredom sometimes really mindfully. It's really intense, the unpleasantness of boredom. It makes sense why we fantasize or, you know, do whatever we do when we're bored. Same with restlessness. So can we just hold our own pain? Can we hold the pain of others? Do we have that strength, that power, that fearlessness, that hard-earned wisdom just to hold it? And just then to notice the skill that we have being with ourselves and being with others when we can do that. It's just like there's so many more possibilities of how we can be with others. So I'm going to open it up for discussion in a moment, but I, I wanted to read a little bit from uh, Sharon Salzberg's book. She has a nice book called uh, The Heart, or rather Heart, as wide as the world. And this is a chapter, I think, on forgiveness. She says, horrifying, cruel things happen in the world. It is the height of delusion to deny that these things occur. The question is, how do we respond when we are the recipients of cruelty? Forgiveness obviously does not have to do with denying our suffering 
or our anger, but with opening to something greater. When we do so, we discover self-destructiveness. We discover the self-destructiveness of our hatred and, at the same time, our extraordinary capacity for love. Whether or not we ever call it forgiveness, to recognize that place of clear seeing and open-heartedness is a heroic journey. She goes on, she mentions Mahagosananda, this famous Cambodian monk who uh, was there during the great killing, you know, in the 70s, and then uh, eventually went to Thailand to be in the, the refugee camps. Well, a lot of the Cambodians were there who had escaped and, uh, and just talked, basically had the people repeat over and over again this teaching from the Buddha that I mentioned earlier about hatred never leading to the end of hatred, uh, of hate. And then later at a conference he was asked about like how he could work with the Cambodian people who had suffered such amazing losses and of course were really angry. How could he work with them about not following their anger, not getting invested in their anger? And he said over and over again that the work that he had done was just making peace with himself. I was making peace with myself. I was just making peace with myself. You know, so like he might be preaching hatred never ceases by hatred, but he was really telling himself hatred never ceases by hatred. And then Sharon ends this chapter, she says, perhaps the essence of forgiveness is just that, making peace with ourselves. We make peace with our outrage, with our helplessness, with our anger and resentment, for it seems that forgiveness has more to do with ourselves than with others. Once we have made peace with all of those painful aspects of ourselves, we can cease hating, and we can allow love to come forth. When you make peace with yourself, you make peace with the world. It would be nice to hear from people, your own experiences, making peace in your life, making peace with yourself, questions you have about the talk. Yeah, Jonathan, nice and loud for everyone to hear. Yeah, um, all your points are extremely timely. I was listening to it, obviously, and I
I think, you know, traditionally, the relationship we have with our own mind, our own conditioning, is sort of the model for all of our other relationships. But in terms of gaining skill, generally the teaching would say, start where it's easy. And for some people, working with themselves is easy. I mean, ultimately, of course, we can't avoid working with our own relationship, with our stuff, with our own mind. But doesn't mean that that's the easy place for us. So I think, you know, and you know, your earlier point about self-loathing. Yeah, in the West, you know, partly because of our culture, we're really complicated people. And self-loathing is a very complicated thing. It's like layer upon layer. You know, we have to have a very refined and complicated sense of self to deserve that much hatred. You know, if we have a more natural, simple sense of self, how evil can it be? But if, if it, you know, the more complicated it is, the, so in, it's not like complications in and of themselves are bad, but it, uh, it allows for more drama. You know, it's sort of like, it's a more expansive thing. And so in that expansion, you can create kind of all sorts of pockets where neurotic things can arise, like self-loathing. So if, there, if you happen to be one of those people who have a real head of, head of steam around self-loathing, which is a big part of the conditioning, it's important not to take it personally, but it's also important not to think that you immediately, you should heal from it or you should be free of it because it's not personal. You know, it's going to take as long as it takes. And we can just start doing the work wherever the work presents itself. So wherever there is sort of in the moment some problem, then we practice being free with that, like how to be free. So a difficult interaction with a friend, a difficult relationship we're having with pain in the knee right now. We don't have to go right to the heart of our deep sense of shame or a deep sense of not being good enough. That will present itself in due time. You know, it's like I was saying, in this path as we're cultivating more sensitivity, a more profound sense of openness, of course, what is going to arise in that space of openness? Well, any pervasive or a sense of self-shame or self-loathing that has the momentum, it's going to arise in that space. So we don't actually have to go looking for it. We just let it come when it comes. And then even then, if it's overwhelming, it's okay to redirect one's attention. Like, okay, I've worked on this, I've opened to this, but now I'm feeling a little overwhelmed by this pain, so I'm gonna redirect my attention. I'm gonna go take a walk. I'm gonna go have, call a friend and have some laughs, or whatever, whatever works. Yeah, that's right. You know what helps recognize things like self-loathing? Is if the moment before it arises, the mind was in a state of love, 
then it really stands out. But if we were in a sort of an aversive, reactive state prior to the self-loathing arising, it doesn't stand out as much and we get seduced right by the content of it. So that's why generally, I mean, it seems like a bit like a chicken and egg syndrome, but if we can touch more regularly moments of feeling happy, joyful, easeful, then our neurotic tendencies really stand out for what they are, neurotic tendencies, you know, or unproductive qualities of mind, states of mind that tend to replicate more stress. But now they stand out because they're, they're like a different frequency, you know, one's tight, one's released. So the more we can uh, value touching beauty, touching joy, touching relaxation, wholesome state, it really helps. Other thoughts come to mind? Yeah, Lewis. Nice to see you, Lewis. My life. you know, when you were saying, you know, that we like our suffering, and I think we like it for two reasons, a good reason and maybe a bad reason or an unproductive reason. Like, sometimes we like our suffering because it provides a sense of self, you know, like, I'm the one who suffered, I'm the one who's been wronged. And how many, I mean, we know this, we've seen this in so many ways, how victims, people who have been oppressed, who have experienced a lot of suffering, they, in a sense, own their dad identity because it's familiar, because it creates some, a sense of security, being a somebody who's been wronged or something like that. But there's other ways people relate to suffering. And I really like this image, and I hope you can make the connection. Uh, some of you know Joanna Macy, a really uh, wonderful Buddhist teacher and also environmental activist. And 
and she has this image of uh, you know the, what we're trying to do with the nuclear waste that we've been the nuclear nuclear plants have been generating for all these decades now. And she thought, well, instead of climbing some mountain and drilling down a couple miles and storing it and you know kind of pretending that it never happened, she said we should build these huge, beautiful temples. You know that would be stored. Uh, basically, a temple to our ignorance. <laughs> you know, assuming that you know her political view is that nuclear power plants are bad. So, but but the point here I think is really important. Like to, to translate this to our suffering. Like we when we really healed and connected and opened and allowed whatever needed to move to move. If we needed to say something around this suffering, we said it. If we needed to just receive something, we received it. If we needed to, whatever we needed to do, any doors that needed to be opened have been opened. But we don't want to forget it. We want to sort of make a beautiful temple because what does it do? It reminds us that suffering doesn't have to be a problem. It can be a teacher. It can actually be a cause for liberation. I mean, this is, I know it sounds like a cliche, but I bet at least half of us could tell a, a pretty powerful story about some difficult situation in our life that now we're grateful for because we learned something from it that we otherwise wouldn't have learned. And I've heard people say, tell stories of things that I would never want to happen to me, but they're talking about it and they're sincerely saying, I am really happy this happened to me. So anyway, that, that's what came to mind, like these two relationships with suffering. Yeah, say your name. I'm Rob. Uh, the thing that I experienced during the meditation portion uh, was with the forgiveness. Uh, a lot of emotion. <laughs> and because I've been at war with my mother. And, uh, you know, today's been Imagine if we have had done a little bit of this kind of work every day for the last, you know, 20, 30 years. A little bit of movement every day would be a lot of unwinding. You know, these things that now are like big edifices in our lives because 
we practiced our resentment toward our mom or toward our partner or to whomever day after day. So we kind of build up, have built up the hardness, the contraction. But we can do, if we can build it up, we can undo it. Yeah, thanks so much for sharing that, Rob. Let's see your name. Tim. Do Absolutely, and I, I alluded to that earlier, but it's a good point that Tim's bringing up again, which is, you know, we're talking about forgiveness tonight, and it's really useful, I think, I find for myself, to take these different themes, whether it's forgiveness or kindness or clarity or investigation, you know, but all the different ways the Buddha taught, but we're always talking about the same thing, suffering and the end of suffering. The mind that holds or clings or grasps versus the mind that releases. And that's all, the whole path is that. It's understanding like when the mind is contracting, gripping, grasping, clinging, hating, to know what that is and to know what that leads to. And when the mind is releasing, loving, allowing, opening, trusting, what does that feel like? What does that lead to? That's it, that's it. And we do that when we're sitting, and we do that when we're living our daily life. And the opposite of doing that is to be uh, not mindful. And then the grasping and the releasing is just happening according to our habit. But we're not learning because we're not mindful. So we just tend to repeat whatever habits. You know, some people have, have pretty released lives, but it's not because they're wise. They just have habits that are more about releasing than they are about contracting. But they're not learning how to be more free because they're not mindful. There are people who have a lot of habits around contracting, but they're practicing a lot of mindfulness. So those people are going to gain more liberation, more freedom than the people who are already somewhat free that aren't mindful at all. They're not really learning from their life at all. Thanks for bringing that up. Couple minutes left. Anything else? Yeah, Barbara. Uh, I'm just sitting here thinking about practical application with the I mean, I think the first most important thing is just to heal any uh, anger or contraction that any of us have around it. Like whenever we're violated, and you know, we're all being violated in different ways, you know, what can we do to heal that sense of violation? What understanding? I mean, what we think we, we should do is like build a better security system or something like that. but. The actual result of just doing that, I'm not saying that we shouldn't, you know, be careful and do what needs to be done, but we have to be uh, on the lookout for 
a siege mentality, more like we're thinking, oh, the best way to be in life is to be really fearful that our things are going to be taken. So why can't we do what's practical to do and at the same time stay released and understand that we live in this world where people do bad things or are desperate or, you know, like I read recently, some of you maybe saw this, there's a little um, increase or a large increase in heroin use in the cities. And I don't know if it's just cheaper now or something. So, you know, people who get addicted, especially to drugs like heroin, I'm assuming they're quite desperate. And uh, like in this particular case, nothing was taken. There are lots of things that could have been pawned that clearly the people were just looking for money. And because they couldn't find the money, they just left. And uh, so that sort of makes me think that they needed money fast for something. Any last thoughts? Yeah. Say your name again. Amoja. Amoja. The thought comes to mind, and I something like that when Barbara was speaking. I'm glad you articulated. I think it's a great idea. And, you know, we're doing more of that. And maybe I'll just make the plug. You know, uh, one thing we're doing now, Common Ground finally feels like we're grown up enough that we can start, like, giving back to the community. And so we, we're having an event on uh, September 8th. It's the second annual now Festival of Giving where we raise a, a bunch of money for some charities that take care of people, basically. And so all the Common Ground sponsors it, pays for the event, and then any money that comes in uh, uh, is just given away. And we have some great musicians uh, performing at it. Um, Lewis will be speaking again if he's in town, and so please join us. Put aside, that's the Saturday after Labor Day. We'll be having that. Thanks for that good idea. And uh, if anybody has some energy around that, too, I mean, things get done here because people are motivated. Have, and there are a lot of people who are ha happy to help, but it takes a few people who are inspired. So if people have some ideas about how the community and the center can uh, yeah, just sort of reach out and be a force for good in the community, um, please bring it to the office, to me or to Shelley. But let's let go of the words, take a few breaths.